The reality that alien life existed galvanized mankind in many ways. The idea of not being alone, and even better, that said life was amenable to communication and trade? A partner in this new galaxy was exactly what people needed. Virtually every major nation around the globe was knee-deep in parliamentary meetings and senatorial hearings, and whatever other governing body they had, debating exactly the whys and the wherefores. For while many agreed to reach out to these creatures, none could seem to agree on how. This situation was complicated by the existence of the colonies. Humanity had not been idle of these last six years. There were already viable settlements in the Gagarin, Shepard, Tereshkova, and Glenn systems, all only a few short hours from Earth. Regular spaceways had already been mapped out to connect these one with another, allowing for transit between them to become more regulated and commonplace. Each settlement had access to a bounty of untapped resources and regularly traded with their partners to further development. How exactly the nations of Earth were splitting up these slices of the stars was convoluted. Initially, some of the more powerful and advanced nations would simply lay claim to entire systems, but... <laughs> That was quickly unmasked as the sham it was, with no real way to enforce or exploit it. Joint projects became the norm, across corporations, special interest groups, countries. Some nations refused to participate at all. In short, everyone reached out in a different way, leading to a very confusing series of borders. For the colonies themselves, this was usually a much simpler affair. Planets are big places, but settlements often deliberately laid routes fairly near each other specifically to help increase chances of survival. This is often true across continents, and planets, and systems. This meant that within a few short years, oftentimes people in the settlements would think of themselves more as settlers or colonials or homesteaders than Russians or French or American. And while in some distant map it was outlined which portions of which planets belonged to which powers, in practice, this was given lip service at best. One might reasonably ask how all this was possible in such a short time. In truth, it was an artificially pushed scenario. Shortly after the discovery of the new stars, several of the richest and most powerful people on Earth had met in secret to decide their fate. Almost all present were mostly seeing how they could amass greater wealth, tacking on more zeros to an already inflated score. But one present had other intentions. Miss Ludovica Berlusconi sat on a wealth of influence and resources that was staggering to contemplate. She was sharp, precise, brutally ruthless, and a long-term thinker. And ultimately, she had spent most of her recent life meandering through it, directionless. But she had been personally approached during the so-called dark years by an unassuming woman who caught her attention. The two talked at length about politics, economics, philosophy, and the nature of people. They parted amicably, and for many years after, Miss Berlusconi would think fondly of her friend Merlinet. So when the stars changed, she was primed to seize upon the moment. Miss Berlusconi nodded and agreed with the other rich and powerful, playing her part until meeting's end. Then she poured hitherto untold resources into a renewed space race. Billions spent on material, construction, transportation, training, studies. This was in complete violation of her verbal agreement with the others, and sent many scrambling to follow suit. She clearly knew something they did not, and they were not about to fall behind on the new frontier. This meant that, in a very short period of time, so much had been sunk into ships, settlement architecture, atmospheric adjusters, and other necessary technology, 
that the commonality of it drove prices down to the point where others could venture into the industries. Luxury ships, transport ships, mass cargo ships, science ships. With enough backing and interest, such more niche ideas could be conceived, constructed, and sold on market. And thanks to an abundance of availability in both broad and specific, a ticket to cross the stars would cost little more than one to cross the ocean, which had the added benefit of effectively flinging the door open on the aforementioned colonization. Meanwhile, several light years away, the Azimdi reaction was different. Knowledge of alien life was not a new concept, as many had long suspected there were others in their galactic neighborhood. But the realization of just how alien that life was sent ripples through Azimdi society. Singularis was, by human standards, a barren world. No plants, no animals, not even bacteria on its surface. Thus the very concept of organic life was something many Azimdi had a hard time processing. Panic or wild speculation and general disorder struck amongst the common populace, egged on by a media campaign that quickly seized on the idea of these organic beings as the new boogeyman for the latest in plays and stories. Though rarely did this erupt into actual violence, society remained tense. But at the upper echelons of Azimdi society, things were very different. The major holders of each conquered agreed to a private meeting to discuss the situation, a meeting that even Veredeth was invited to, despite his informal banishment. They agreed, to a number, that this was a golden opportunity, and despite their wild differences, these humans were going to be far more useful as an ally than an enemy. Veredeth was reinstated as a formal holder of Netvin, and given a crucial mission, reach out to these aliens, connect. Build a bond with them. In truth, some of the conquered holders thought this was simply another, more permanent form of banishment for Veradeth. Although realizing the potential gains to be had, the idea of a lasting association with things so utterly unlike them was simply impossible in their minds. Best they could hope for is time to prepare an advance warning of whatever conflict they brought. Veradeth, for his part, had no doubts of the viability of his mission. He had spent many hours conversing with the human Wadain Jabari, and in time he had seen not just another form of life, but an equal one, one that valued similar things and concepts, ideas of cooperation, intellectual expression, artistic endeavors, and the bonds of fellows. The first hurdle in his way was simple communication. In truth, this hurdle proved so frustrating that it threatened to stall or stop the peace process entirely. Fortunately, thanks to a politician who had been present at one of the peace talks, inspiration struck in a way that finally produced results. Music. Music appealed to the Azimdi mind. It was a form of expressed mathematics, and the patterning of it fit neatly within their lattice. Directly from music came singing, and with these ideas, Veredith was able to logically jump from the ideas of patterns, to audible patterns, to audible patterns as a method of communication. No slouch himself, he was actually able to produce music from several of his form's outlier crystals, a tune described by those present as hauntingly beautiful. For the next few months, Veradeth would meet with people from around the globe, visiting any nation that had an interest in opening its doors to the Azimdi. He was exposed to a great many ideas and cultures and languages, and over this period, for the first time, the idea of a universal human language was broached, to introduce alien species to, to facilitate first contact. 
The full story of the construction of what would eventually be called Imperial is a story in and of itself, filled with a great deal of political wrangling as many nations vied and argued that their language should be the one chosen. But in the end, with some assistance from Veredeth himself, Imperial was chosen and designed, taught to a few key individuals on both sides, so the two species could openly converse for the first time. With this incredible success in his pattern, Veredeth was eager to then treat the human ambassadors to his world, to show to them what they had already shown for him. Unfortunately, two significant problems quickly arose with this idea. First, he was here as a representative of his whole species, but no such human existed. Even if it was pared down to those nations with a stake in the starways, he would still have at least 13 nations' representatives traveling with him, with competing interests and viewpoints. But the second problem was far more dangerous. As alluded to earlier, Singularis was effectively a barren world, owing mostly to a lack of metal in its construction. As such, it had no real magnetic field, and was bathed in fairly deadly radiations on a regular basis. This was compounded by the other things the planet lacked. Water. Atmosphere. Base bacteria. This was no issue to an Azimdi, of course, but even a fully suited human would find the entire experience exceptionally unpleasant. By coincidence or chance, this is when Verdeth met Miss Ludovica Berlusconi. With her wealth and influence, she'd been present at virtually every encounter with the Azimdi, and she had been paying very careful attention to what he responded to and how. Ever the schemer, Berlusconi quickly introduced Verdeth to the idea of reaching out to the colony worlds instead, find something closer to real consensus. Finding the idea appealing, Veredeth and Berlusconi were leaving on her personal yacht for Gagarin IV before most of the other national officials were even aware she'd left. Having overcome hurdles of communication, politics, finances, and disagreements, by some miracle, the first year of connection between humanity and Azimdi remained peaceful. Things were looking up. 